Uh, welcome to the podcast. My name is Father Bill W. Um, I am an Episcopal, Episcopal or Anglican uh, priest and uh, in long-term uh, recovery from alcoholism. Uh, the point of these podcasts, I'm going to be very brief in our introduction because we got a lot of work to get to today. Um, the point of the podcasts is to help people go deeper into the spirituality, the history, and the psychology uh, that underlies the, the 12 steps. So uh, if you're kind of nerdy, <laughs> this is good stuff for you. And uh, a lot of folks seem to be enjoying it. We are uh, into the second episode now of looking at uh, using Carl Jung as, as a guide to the 12 steps. My guest is Dr. Ian McCabe. He's the author of a, a wonderful book uh, called Carl Jung, and Alcoholics Anonymous. What I hope to get to in this uh, episode is a basic layout. What is it in us that has to undergo a psychic change? And what does a psychic change look like and feel like? And how did Wilson experience that? And what can we learn from that and, uh, and put to, to good use in our own program? So welcome back, Ian. Uh, it's good, good to have you. And I, I, by, by way of introduction, Ian is a psychologist. Um, he's a Jungian analyst. He's um, a therapist who works uh, with uh, addiction in, in many, in many, many forms. And he's also a man in long-term recovery. So uh, I've probably been waiting three years. I've been doing these podcasts for someone like you to come along and uh, help us make sense of some of this stuff. So I'm excited to have you, and you've been a great guest so far. So uh, don't blow it now, Ethan. Let's. Uh... Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Bill. Thank you. Bill. So let's let's get started. Um, we, we, uh, you know, in recovery, we, we we throw around a lot of terms, and and perhaps the one term that we're um, uh, maybe off course with uh, quite a bit is ego. It's like like ego. We have to get rid of ego, you know. Kill it, gone, uh, never, never to raise its head again. And um, that, that's not mm. exactly accurate, you know. So what mm -hmm. I'd like to help have you do, and mm -hmm. uh, I'll kind of guide you through this, is draw for us a little bit of a a very basic map of the soul. Uh, okay, and, and um, let's let's start with consciousness. So the, the Consciousness and 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 the soul are 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 blended together in some ways. Eh? Uh, they go together, and particularly in Jungian uh, psychology, eh? the psyche. The psyche, yeah. What is the psyche? And uh, I was thinking in terms of psychology, ology, psyche, study of the soul. But in psyche in modern days, psychology in modern days, a lot to do with statistics. But I would like to just uh, comment on your first um, introduction in relation to ego. Mm. It gets a very bad press in AA in particular, and the acronym is Edging God Out. Right. And that has some truth in it, because ego is the center of consciousness. But I'd like to look upon ego as, as, as this very simplified version. And I think there is a book that deals with this version of it, that we have the self, 
the true self, which encompasses everything, including consciousness, the ego, the persona, the shadow, personal consciousness, collective unconsciousness. So we have this ego, and where does it come from? Well, it comes out of consciousness because a baby is born, and when does a baby get consciousness? I don't really know the exact answer to that because I think scientists differ, but let's say they might say it's in the third trimester. So uh, the ego is in the womb with the baby. It's not functioning, but it's there ready to be activated. So when a baby is born, we might think it's got a certain degree of consciousness. We may think it is a degree of ego. Consciousness meaning that it's aware, that it's awake. Baby can copy us, for example, when the father sticks out, and the mother sticks out his tongue, like mm, baby may copy this at a very early stage. Is that consciousness? Um, ego certainly comes to the forefront with uh, parents who recognize the terrible twos, the I, I want this, rather than saying, oh, James wants this. They then suddenly at the age of uh, about two say, I want this. And then everything is mine, mine. And so it, we, have the, we have the terrible twos. But ego is necessary for consciousness because ego is doing the work in the real world. It has to go out there and get educated. And there's an element of competition and everything. So the ego has to compete. It has to find a mate, whether it's a partner, whether it's in a marriage or whatever. And then the ego becomes a world unto itself almost. It thinks, it thinks it is the essence of the self. And it forgets that the self has sent it out there. And I'm intertwining the self with consciousness, but the self is the greater consciousness. It's the overall archetype of everything. So. The self is a spiritual concept. It sends the ego out into the world to do its bidding, to make a career, find a house, a mate, children. But then I would say around about the age of 40, particularly in relation now to addiction and particularly alcoholism, around about the age of 40, the ego goes, oh, I'm so successful. I don't want to be subservient to the true self almost unaware of this true self too is that correct that's right that's yeah. right it's not conscious it becomes it, it, it yeah. thinks everything is is to do with the material but particularly with people with an alcohol problem around about 40 there's a great sense of mortality and the ego even feels this but rather than accept it it rebels against it and it may want greater connection with the material world so at the age of 40 or so, it has uh, people have a decision to make, really. Do they create a Faustian pact and say, okay, I'll align myself with materialism, with the devil, so to speak, in the hope that I can have eternity? Or particularly if they're drinking, will I stop drinking because this alcoholism is giving me a lot of problems? And so the ego then if it carries on drinking, it becomes what's called egotistical, edging God out. 
So around about the age of 40, a lot of people with an alcohol problem begin to reflect upon themselves and think, well, will I, will I continue to drink or not? Now, this is where consciousness comes in. As far as I know, the wonderful human beings that we're blessed with being are the only creatures that are able to self-reflect, to be able to criticize ourselves. And there's a, a writer you may be familiar with and build called Tihard Deschardins. Oh, sure, Jesuit. Jesuit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a book called A Phenomenon of Man. And the, uh, the essence, part of the essence of that is that we can reflect upon ourselves like animals, they act out of instinct, but we can reflect upon ourselves and say, am I doing the right thing? I can be self-critical, I did the wrong thing. And this is a phenomenon that is unique to human beings. So around about some stage 40-ish, we can decide to drink or not drink. And for some, I mean, that can come at 18 or, or 15 even. I mean, it's a movable feast. Yes, uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I think I think younger people are more fortunate and they're getting the message these days that they, if they continue drinking, they will, they will end up in a difficult situation. Whereas yeah. I think I think physiological, the age of 40 somehow rings it's the midlife true. crisis. Yes, the middle, it is the midlife crisis. And this is where ego can be related to, to addiction. Um, and as I say, it gets a bad press, but we have to develop a strong ego. And that, that means that we have to be able really to criticize ourselves, to look at what's called our shadow. This is another aspect of Jungianism. Yeah, let me let me walk you through this, because I think this would be of great help to our listeners. So I, I, what I want to trace here is the, the development and evolution of ego. And ego means I. It's a Latin term for I. So as, as you're saying, this is my sense of I-ness. And in the womb, it's meshed with the mother. There, there is no separation. I mean, Correct. everything is one. Everything is whole. Everything is Garden of Eden, one might say. And then uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thrust out of the womb. And, uh, and who am I? The question begins. And I look to my mother. Uh, I look around. And I'm determining who I am who this being is, and, uh, and it's growing, and that's necessary. And you mentioned the terrible twos. That's an absolutely vital part of growing up, is it not? Mm -hmm. uh, one mm -hmm. must separate, become a self. And Jung says this is the work of the first half of life, as, as, as we're getting to, all right? Uh, yes. So now I want to... And you just started doing this. Okay, so here's the ego. It's starting to grow. And two more pieces of the puzzle start coming into view. One is the persona. And the other is the shadow. So what is the persona? How does that develop and evolve? Uh, let, let's start with that. And then we'll go on to the shadow. But start with the persona. 
Okay, um, I, I like I like what you say about um, the ego and Bert. So at Bert, the ego really is it's embedded in the self as a potentiality, but it doesn't actually ex exist in any functional capacity. And then it slowly emerges out of the self to sort of form the center of consciousness. And the ego, in the same way as the self needs the ego to function in the world, the ego also needs the persona and the mm. shadow to function. So right. the ego, the ego, for example, uh, uses the persona as a mask to function in the world. And the persona is usually identified with the career a person chooses. So if a person chooses to be butcher, baker, soldier, sailor, they become identified with that. And that in itself creates a problem because they again become encapsulated with this idea, oh, I, I the ego, am a sailor, butcher, tailor. Yeah, I am what I do. I am what I, I do. I become a human doing. Doing. Instead Rather of being. What, and that's what Eric Fromm says, to, to have or to be. And I think he has a book of that, yep. that, that nature. To have or to be. So the... So we become that, very good at, at, at doing. And I think it's very doing. true of, of addicts. Uh, either we go out there and do it like it's never been done before, or mm -hmm. we say the hell with it, I'm not going to do anything and go in the <laughs> other direction. <laughs> okay. And in, in working with clients who, particularly in the professions, for example, I remember very clearly a barrister with a severe alcohol problem. And I suggesting to him, well, maybe you could attend a meeting of AA as an observer. That's what I always say to my clients, to go along as an observer. <laughs> right. Where there will be other observers such as doctors and nurses and um, legal people uh, observing a meeting of AA at an open meeting. So I try to encourage people to go along very gently as an observer to an open meeting of AA. But I remember, remember the comment of the barrister. He said, <laughs> very seriously, looked me straight in the eyes, I prefer to die. <laughs> Yes, yes. And, and this is very interesting because several times people have come to me at me, uh, initial consultations for their alcohol addiction, and uh, they say, oh, this feels like a part of me is dying. Or even better still, they say, oh, I told, I told my partner I was going to a funeral. <laughs> As though their unconscious knows that in giving up alcohol, they are surrendering a part of their persona and the ego. Yes, the so the persona is the mask that I wear in the world. This is who I am, and it comes from the Greek. The Greeks, uh, they didn't have huge production companies, but they just right. whip on a mask and put it over their face, and they would become that character. So now. Yes. Now I'm this, or now I'm that. And this is the persona. This is our image of ourself. And, and, and it's, it's helpful. It's healthy. We have to have it. 
you know, keep your clothes on, kid. All right. This this is the custom in this country. All right. You know, I drunk, I drunk. yeah. Uh, as soon as you get drunk, off they come. You know, so it kind of frees one up from the persona because the persona can feel like a prison. It can feel kind of false. Uh, but these are the customs and the and the protocols and, and the way of being in this culture. So that's the persona, the mask. And we develop this. This is a false image, one might mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. But not bad, not necessarily bad, but but definitely has an element of falsehood to it, of covering yes. up the true self. Uh, and, and now the shadow is similar to that. Anything that doesn't meet that criteria is very unacceptable. It's very dangerous. So what do I do with that sort of stuff? Right. And here we have, here we have the problem with priests in Ireland. Mm. So the persona yeah. is that, you know, oh, going back some years, I remember at my father's funeral, my auntie saying, whispering to me, the priest, the priest can tell whether the person is going to heaven or hell. And I looked, <laughs> I say, thank God he hasn't spoken about my father. <laughs> But the, the, the adoration, adulation, they bestowed upon the priests. And of course, if you were a mother of a priest in Ireland, I mean, then you were, ooh, you were going to go to heaven because there's no way God was going to send the mother of a priest to hell. So priests were really adored. So their natural sexual instincts were suppressed into the shadow. Whereas most uh, men, 95%, will masturbate. Will priests masturbate? Will they feel terribly guilty about it? Will they put it away into the shadow? And so their sexual, sexuality is suppressed to such an extent that it then emerges like Phoenix out of the ashes. Now, I'm in two minds about talking about priests and pedophilia simply because I think some pedophiles were attracted to the priesthood as a disguise, so they wouldn't be um, they wouldn't be suspected. But then I wondered if ordinary people, ordinary men, and it is men, even though our talk is, and my talk may be quite sexist, priests are men in the Catholic Church. Um, suppressed her sexuality to such an extent that it came out in a perverted way. I'm not so sure about that. But the shadow element of any anybody, and today's human, today people in addiction, for example, if they're engaged in looking at pornography or any other practices that are incongruent with the 12 steps, they may suppress it into, into the shadow, but it will emerge. It will emerge. And Jung says, we must look at our shadow and assimilate and accept it that we're human beings, we're not perfect. And the idea of the shadow rather than to reject, reject it, we must accept it. But that, that almost says that everything in the shadow is bad. No, there's some good stuff in the shadow. Yes. There, may be, there may be talents 
that we hide in the shadow, for example, maybe good artists or good singers or whatever. And the shadow material comes out in, certainly in drunkenness, people act out and they say, oh, it's because I was drunk. I notice that the sun is coming in now and giving my left side a shadow and my right <laughs> side a light. And this is what Jung would call synchronicity, a coincidence. That I am both, I am both. I am both. Okay, so you I am light and darkness. Light and darkness. Which is, and we will get to this when we start looking at the steps, because mm -hmm. fourth and fifth step in particular, that's shadow work. That's going Absolutely. into the shadow. It's, it's trying to allow into consciousness some things that I have been pushing down and afraid to share. Afraid to even look at, eh? Yes, yes. Yeah. And and carrying it, carrying it with us. And then the worst of all is, does it, does it go on to further generations? For example, ah. um, the there is the, the aspect of the very pious. Again, I'm using the Irish uh, examples. Very very pious parents go to church every day, and then suddenly. 16, 17, their daughter becomes pregnant. And what that may be is the shadow is acting out through the next generation. Through the next generation, that's right. That's so right. This is, stuff does get passed on, shadow yeah. material. Uh, mm -hmm. I need to look at it. Is it. Where did this come from? Is this mine or is it my father's or is it my grandfather's or my grandmother's? that I am still carrying. And the shadow, shadow is in the personal consciousness, but it's also shadow in the collective unconscious. Mm -hmm. So we could look, if we want to look at the, um, okay, I mean, it's, I'm just thinking off the top of my head now, could we look at the American shadow in, related, in relation to the Native American Indians, it being Thanksgiving? Right. Could we look at the shadow of the Jewish people who have uh, endured great persecution over the centuries, but then somehow encapsulated it, integrated it, and now expresses onto the poor Palestinians. So we're talking about trauma there. But the shadow in the collective is there as well, that nations can have their own shadow. And the shadow we can project, for example, in America, there's, there was a common uh, story I, I heard once that uh, somebody saw an airplane passing overhead in America, and someone points and says, Oh, look at that, that's a new type of airplane. He said, No, that's the Ruskies. They're sending <laughs> sending over planes to observe us. And so the projection of the shadow between nations. Mm -hmm. So the Russians would project their contempt for materialism, so-called capitalism, onto the Americans. And of course, the Americans would project their contempt. <laughs> Right That's right. So this is this is the scapegoat. The scapegoat. Scapegoat. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You. I can't look at my guilt or handle my shame 
And so rather than do that, I project it out onto someone else. And that can be done personally. And then what you're saying is it can also be done collectively as a, as a nation. And, and this we do. This and, to bring it back, and to bring it back to the individual and simplify it, I love the mm -hmm. expression, when you point the finger at one person, you point three at yourself. Right. Because in that which we detest so much, our shadow will be a part of it. So there's the Shakespeareans quote, me to think it, uh, the woman, man that protested too much. So when you have somebody like Senator McCarthy in the 50s um, persecuting people for various reasons, so-called communism, etc., cetera, uh, he was probably acting out parts of his shadow about bad people because there were parts of him that he may have considered himself bad, but he couldn't assimilate them or accept them, but better to focus on outside people. So when we say someone's really mean, <laughs> I wonder if I, when I say somebody's really mean, I wonder, am I the person who's really mean and see it in the other? I had an incident uh, uh, many, many years ago. Uh, my daughter is in her 40s now. Um, she doesn't listen to the podcast, so it's okay. <laughs> she, she won't catch that. But when she was like uh, one or two years old, I, I had her and my wife was not there and I'm visiting uh, my parents and, uh, and she's in the room with me and she cries during the night and wakes me up. Well, the first time I comfort her, the second time I comfort her, the third time I'm getting angry, the fourth time I'm kind of furious, all right? And the mm -hmm. fifth time I wanted to kill her. <laughs> All right. Now, wait, now, wait. Uh, I was aware of that, that there is a part of me which I would deny that wanted to hurt her because of what she was doing to me. Now, I had to eventually own that. Mm -hmm. I wanted to push it down. I wanted to put it into the shadow. You stay down there in the cellar. This is this. I, I am not that kind of a person. But once I began to accept it, it doesn't, I mean, I have enough controls that I didn't do it. Yes. You know what it did for me, Ian? It helped me have compassion for people who don't have that kind of control that for whatever reason I had that kept me from doing it. Because I know people who have slapped their kids, hurt mm -hmm. their kids, gone to yeah. prison for doing that, all right? Mm -hmm. and, and I am just as capable of doing that uh, as well. I mean, to me, that, sh that was my, one of my classics of, of, uh, of owning my own shadow. Does that, does that make sense? That does absolutely make sense. As an aside to that, as a psychologist and as an addictive psych an addiction specialist, I would say, just to remind you that uh, people who are withdrawing from heroin, the cry of a baby would be magnified several times. So yeah. the agitation they feel is, is tremendous. But to identify with that, I remember my own son in the terrible threes. Uh, it was snowing outside and I had tried everything. I was minding him. I had just tried everything to 
keep him from being mischievous and calm him down. And I thought about putting, putting him outside in the garden. Right. And um, immediately, here's where uh, Tihar de Chardin comes in, the self-reflection. You go, oh, I've had that thought, banish it. And but I was then speaking to a social worker and it was lovely. I was telling her, I said, I'm really feeling guilty about this um, confidentially. You know, I had this thought about putting him out into the garden and I'd read in the newspaper, this is what brought it about. Some parent actually did this and the child froze to death, one of these horrific stories. And then I said, oh my God, I said, I felt like putting my child out in the garden and it was snowing. And she just brushed it off casually and said, ah, oh, you know, I feel like doing that all the time. But the point is, we don't. But I was able to bring it up from the shadow. And your story as well, had you not uh, sort of I, uh, understood it more, and then it's a possibility it might have been suppressed and acted out in, in, at some level, maybe not at, at, at um, a level of child physical abuse. But right. this is this is understanding and what Jung calls assimilating the shadow, mm -hmm. assimilating the shadow and saying, "Hey, it's the human condition. We're we're fairly we're fairly normal, and to accept that we're in a state of progress, not perfection." And there's probably some of that in, in the custom in in twelve steps is to say, "Well, I am an alcoholic." that there is within me this alcoholism and, and, and it has power. And so just by owning it, there's, there's a, um, uh, a, a diminution of the power that it has. Uh, yes. Just yes. by bringing it to consciousness, yes. it yes. diffuses it in some way. Yes, I, I agree. Normal normalizes it. Um, normalizes it. Yeah. I think uh, there's there's a writer called Sylva Neves, uh, who's writing about um, pornography addiction, and he's mm. making this point that if people can just acknowledge it, and then it can lose some of its power. Right. And and and. Um, so rather than repressing it all the time, just acknowledging it that um, men in particular human beings and, for example, men who deny that they masturbate uh, would suppress it into the shadow, it might come out in some way, but the truth being that most men masturbate. And so the acceptance uh, I read 95% masturbate and 5% lie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was a pretty good statistic. <laughs> that, is, that is a good, a good statistic. So when we acknowledge our humanity and say, "Yeah, this is this is part and parcel of of being a man," it take it takes away some of the power. And the good point is that Neves makes then people may, may not become obsessed and as preoccupied with pornography or masturbation as as they were. So it's bringing it out into the light and shedding shedding light on it. Right. Yeah, so, so I can go down and dig in some some other stuff that's much much more valuable that's hiding there. Right. Yeah. But I would I would just uh, focus a little bit more in the same way as the ego has the persona as its ambassador to go out into the world, and uh, the 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 ego then has its persona to go out into the world. I would also say that part of the 
shadow also has hidden in it the anima and animus. And I mention that simply because the shadow does have some good material. It can be misused, but it has got some good material. So when we refuse to accept compliments, yeah. it, that can be part of our shadow material. We may be wonderful singers, and then when we get drunk, we can sing out to the world because... Um, <clears throat> So I would say, particularly in Ireland, we're encouraged to suppress our good points and not to put ourselves forward too much. And um, for example, the difference between Irish people and American people, I'm generalizing now, is that the American people would be more extrovert and out there and telling the world how good they are at interviews and stuff like this, whereas Irish people have been trained to be um, humble. Um, so this, 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 what's called false humility can be in the shadow as well. But I'd like to see that some beauty is in the shadow, for example. Yes. When we see or hear something that's nice or beautiful, particularly if it's, um, can be the same sex for somebody who's gay, or it can be uh, the opposite sex for heterosexual, and they see this woman, they can actually see the beauty in themselves. So this is called the anima and the animus. And I refer to that because it's very relevant in relation to the ego and the person with an alcohol problem in their 40s. Because around about 40, the self, the true self, and that can be called the God within, the consciousness, wants to bring the ego back and say, okay, you've done your work now, you've been out in the material world, you've built a career, you've had children, you've built a house, you're leaving a good legacy, but now the unfortunate thing is you're gonna die, you're 40, you're gonna die. May not be three score years, but um, you're, you're going to die. Now's the time to become spiritual. But instead, the ego can go, oh no, no, I, unconsciously it can go, no, no, I wanna stay out in this world. I want to create a Faustian pack. I want to sell my soul to the devil. And here's where the shadow anima can come in. For a man, instead of using the anima to become more feminine towards his old age and spirituality, and for the woman to become more masculine with what's called the animus, the egotistical man around about 40 may disregard his whole family and decide, hey, I'm going to get a trophy wife who's 20 years younger than me, because then they think they can live forever if they continue to, to, to partner up with um, young, young women. And this is, this is a, a, a factor in Jungianism that's recognized. And the, the, the old adage is that the professor uh, gets married to the red-headed barmaid. And the incongruity of the two is just acting out the the, the shadow anima figures. I hope I haven't been too. <laughs> no, let me let me try to uh, grab hold of this. So uh, what you're what you're saying, and I think this is exactly what Jung is saying, is the 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 rules for the first half of life versus the rules for the second half of life. That in the first half of life. It is necessary for the ego to build up a concept of self, all right? Uh, like you say, to, to, to uh, get gold stars on your forehead when you're a little kid in kindergarten, you know? I'm worth <laughs> something, I am something, you know? 
And mm-hmm. that carries you through high school and college and all, and you get the good job and all of that sort of, but then comes the crisis. Is this all there is, Alfie? You know, was, was you know, and, and it's not. And what Jung says is the rules for the second half of life are very, very different from the rules from the first half of life. Success has nothing to teach a man or woman after age such and such, all right? Nothing more to teach you. Um, I remember him saying once a, a, a patient came and uh, let's say he's in his 50s or so. And uh, he had just gotten an, an, a, a promotion at work. He was now made vice president of something. And he tells Jung this. And Jung says, well, I don't suppose we're going to get much work done today. In <laughs> other words, your ego has inflated. You mm-hmm. are godlike and you're going in the wrong direction. We're not going to get much work done today. This has to run its course. So egos can inflate and they can deflate. Yes. You know? Uh, and, and, and I've had patients, and I'm sure you have as well, uh, when I was counseling, um, who uh, I want to talk about ego inflation. Let, let, okay. Let's talk about that first, because that's, that's kind of fun. So ego okay. inflation. I'm hot stuff, you know? Uh, uh, Icarus is the classical description of, yes. of that. The father, mm-hmm. the father says to the kid, you know, uh, we're stuck on this island. We got to get off the island. We're going to make wings. I'm going to fashion these out of gossamer threads or whatever it is. Flap, you flap them, but don't fly too high. You will get close to the sun. And, and like every kid who gets into his uh, a new car, you know, a 16, 17 year old gets a hot car. He's going 60, 70 miles an hour. He's flying he, he, because the rules don't apply to him. Right, right. The rules don't apply. And then crash. Yes. Down he goes. You know, so that's inflation. That's an inflated ego. And this is what I think we're talking about in 12 Step. When we talk about the danger of the ego, watch out for the yes. inflation. Yes. Watch out for the inflation. But the opposite side of it, too, have you had uh, people who just think they're the worst sons of guns that ever yes, crawled out from under a rock. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. But I love your story on Icarus going to the sun because the sun to me would represent the self. Yes. It will melt the wings mm-hmm. of Icarus. So, this, so I would see it in terms of the self being the king. It sent out the ego as its ambassador in the world. Now at 40, it's saying, come back now, deflate, deflate. And then the ego makes the decision to either deflate or to try and increase and kill kill the self, if you like. And of course, that doesn't happen because the self is part of the greater whole. And I would think the ego feels separated isolated alone when it does achieve its so-called successes of more and more and more means but it's never enough it's never enough ian is it i suppose that's the definition of alcoholism yeah more and more and more never enough but definitely alcohol fuels the ego so hence in 
some bars, you meet people saying, if I, if I were only prime minister, if I was prime yes. minister, or I was president, you know, I often see like, so I suppose the first thing you do is reduce the tax on beer and, and whiskey, yeah? <laughs> well, so uh, Wilson had a lot of that. I'd like to use him as a bit of a case study. Sure. Um, and I, and, I, and I, I want to also see if we can't touch a little bit on trauma. Yes. And the effect of trauma in the in the development and maintenance of a healthy ego. So let's start with uh, with Wilson because he he had some very severe and they're not talked about much, but some very severe uh, childhood traumas. And I know you work a lot with uh, with with young young children who who undergo yes. this thing. So his father abandons the family. Uh, Eight nine years old, he goes off to the west coast and leaves them. Yes, uh, and then the second trauma uh, was his mother, who was quite cold, uh, as I as I have read her. Uh, yes. she goes off to school, and yes. and takes his sister with her. Yes, but leaves him, leaves him with the grandparents. Yes. And then yes. the death, the death of his girlfriend yes. in, in high school. Uh, yes. He's very close. He's, he's, he's clinging to her. And yes. she dies. Bertha, I yes. believe her name was. Yes. Uh, and, and, and so th there are some severe traumas that he's undergone. And, and, yes. and when you read his early biography, he's got to become a number one man. That was the, the expression that he used a lot. Yes. I must be a number one man. You tell him he can't do something. I think his grandfather told him he, a boomerang. You can never make a boomerang. Yes. Uh, only Australians can make boomerangs. Yes, yes. And he said, watch me, watch me. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't stop until he had done it. Mm -hmm. You know, so there, there's the <laughs> prime material for the development, uh, at least psychologically, for addiction, eh? Yes, yes. And I'm very, very touched by Bill's recounting of, you know, his father abandoning him because yeah. um, from memory, it's his father brings him out in a horse and buggy and is, I mean, that's a lovely idealistic picture, horse and buggy and they're trotting along there, but he's telling him that he's leaving. I'm leaving. And apparently Bill goes up a tree and refuses to come down. So there's something in that that he refuses to accept the grounding, the reality. And maybe as, as many of the children I work with, uh, they try and reunite their, their, their parents. And I do believe there's an archetypal movement within a child to reunite his parents, for example, when the parents are splitting up, the child acts out in class and he's brought to the principal's office and on either side of him, he has the mother and the father who come in and wonder, what's, what's up? Why is he suddenly acting aggressively in the classroom? And the little child is sitting there looking at the principal, looking at his mummy and daddy and saying, and it might only be six years of age, hey, I've got mummy and daddy back together because they're now focused on, on him. So there, there's, I believe there's an archetypal need for, for a child to 
keep his parents uh, together. And even if it's a single parent, the single parent can be mother and father to the child. But yeah, that, that is a very tragic, tragic story. And the loss of his mother, uh, she studied to become a doctor of osteopathy, I think from memory. Right, now, that's correct. I always think it's interesting that um, Bill was attracted to doctors to give himself and his wonderful uh, ideals and, and knowledge on, on, on helping alcoholics uh, credibility. So he, he is in Towns Hospital and he, he, first of all, he meets Dr. Bob and he's, he uses Dr. Bob's headed paper to write to Lois saying, oh, I'm linked up with this doctor and he's in Towns Hospital. And um, he, he also, um, the name of the doctor in Towns Hospital escapes me. Silkworth, Silkworth. Silkworth, of course. And Silkworth, Silkworth maybe in a father-like figure endorses him and of course uh, writes in the big book as well. Mm. Um, so I think he, he had this, traumatic longing for a, a, a doctor figure in his life. Now the loss of his girlfriend, of course, again added to, 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 to his trauma and his loss. But I, I would say in addiction, when I was working with people in heroin addiction, I always said that post-traumatic stress was at the source of most of the children's addiction, either sexual abuse, physical abuse, mm. or severe loss that created the hole in the soul. And that even when they were on methadone, they would get down to um, small doses of, of methadone millimeters, almost that you would feed a, 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 an inkwell with little, little droplets because they couldn't let go of the connection with what methadone represented to them, whether it was parental love or the milk of their mother's breast or whatever, but certainly, I was always suggesting that uh, the new eye movement desensitization and reprocessing would help people in, in addiction to come to terms with their trauma because the trauma, although people cope with it, it suppresses a feeling, it, it, it suppresses a part of Part of the, the two parts of the brain that are affected are the amygdala, which is the emotions. And so the emotion is really high and then the reasoning is quite low. And explain that in graphic terms, if one witnesses uh, violence among one's parents, then the amygdala goes up with fear and fright and the reasoning goes down to zero or one and the amygdala is up at 10 and the idea is to try and balance the two bring them back up to about five and that can be done with eye movement desensitization and reprocessing uh, i won't go into too much depth on that but yeah. it's a wonderful wonderful um intervention that's as good as as and as prominent really as as cognitive behavioral therapy in terms of psychology so I would be saying to anybody who's in, in addiction and recovering and looking back at their traumatic backgrounds to think about getting a course of treatment of EMDR and eight, eight sessions uh, will actually do. But yes, so Bill's hole in the heart was there and particularly 
the, 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 the boomerang that he, that would be very symbolic of an individuation process that he manages somehow to overcome it and say, I can do it and become my own man. Yes. Yeah. It. Yeah. Same thing with the violin. Uh, yeah. He masters the violin. He um, uh, becomes, I think, the uh, captain of the baseball team. Uh, he, he's driven. And this, this, this drivenness, uh, we need to pay attention to it because it's really uh, coming from the unconscious. And, and the rational in, in opposition to the unconscious is no match for it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this is, this is, this, it's so much more powerful, larger. Um, and, and without help, it is too much for us, you know, as the book says. And, and this, this is what I'm starting to meet when I'm going up against addiction. If the ego thinks it's the match uh, for addiction, look out. Look out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just add, I just add on that. Um, my background is not as severe as as Bill's, but I had a wonderful dream when um, and my father died when I was just seventeen, and I'd had this wonderful dream that I was bringing my father through an art gallery and explaining mm. all pictures to him that is totally outside his his, uh, his zone of comfort or whatever. But it was within mine, and yes. I was saying, I, I've grown, I've outgrown. And um, it was a reconciliation uh, right. with father. And um, through my own education, I, I have begun to try to, to, to understand and reconcile where my parents were coming from. And I love this idea, getting back to original consciousness of, of, of the child, of the embryo in the womb is that what I find very comforting to think of is that we choose our parents, that we are angels flying above and we spot these two people. Boy, <laughs> I'd learned some lessons there. Let's <laughs> and and we choose we're going to we're going to be the the fetus and uh, so we become from spiritual angels to to the fetus. And I, I often wonder when there's, there's a description of a person entering Derry City, which is in Ireland. And the first thing, they're coming in at midnight and they see this drunken couple outside the fish and chip shop uh, eating chips and they're having intercourse. <laughs> in the headlights, they see the bare bottoms of the two people having intercourse whilst eating their chips. And I think, well, what spiritual angel could decide? I'm going to, I'm going to be the 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 embryo that uh, that has formed the fetus that has formed from from this uh, conjunctio of of these two people. But however, I, I jest somewhat on that. But I get comfort from that that we decide to become the children of our parents to learn lessons uh, of some description. And that may have Buddhist implications of uh, rebirth, but uh, there is more in heaven and earth, Horatio, than we will ever know. And some people have 
terribly difficult lessons that they are presented with, soul lessons, you might call them. Um, and uh, I, I mean, from what you're describing, God must have, this soul, Bill, is a wimp compared to what other, other people uh, have been presented with. Uh, and yet, if they're able to work through them, uh, in some ways, the depth of the trauma, if, if you can resolve it, if you can go on the hero's journey, as, as we might frame some of this, and, and, uh, and meet that dragon in your life, rather than letting it uh, uh, overcome you. The, the classic, I remember a, a woman in, uh, I, I got sober in Detroit. She was an African-American woman. Um, uh, two daughters she lost in a fire. Mm -hmm. um and uh so she, and she had no other children and 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 I got to know her uh somewhat well and 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 my my thing was if that ever happened to me I'm out of here yeah. the the deal is over yes you know uh and she said oh no 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 uh yes it was a tragic loss but you know, Bill, I now have a hundred daughters. And she was the mother figure for so many women uh, in her community whom she mothered and mentored and loved. And, uh, and through that, uh, and is that projection? Sure, I, I suppose it is, but it's maybe the right use of projection. It's a healthy kind of uh, projection. Uh, putting her daughter into into those people, and that's that spiritual use of um, of psychological functions. Let us say, uh, yes. for the good, for the good, all for the good. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, my own reaction to that would be similar. I would be out of here. Um, yes. But the the there are expressions like God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Mm. And the other expression in AA is grateful recovering alcoholic. Grateful in a way for what we've been through, because without it, we wouldn't go on this great spiritual journey, this great spiritual adventure of individuation, of trying to understand ourselves, of reaching a spiritual awakening. And I once had a client whose husband just just couldn't get it, just couldn't get it. So I said to her, look at, try to focus on yourself for a change because you know, if an alien were looking down on us talking for the past year, she'd think your name was Harry because you're always talking about Harry, but let's talk about you a little bit more. And I had to pull her away from talking about her husband, but I did say to her, look, trust me when I say God is good. He will trip up your husband and will bring him to his senses. And lo and behold, at a certain point in time, she came in and said, oh, my husband tripped up and banged his nose and he's in, he's in, uh, he's in hospital. And um, 
and that is that is my belief and in that she, she began to change you know yes. and that's family systems family systems basic family systems work if, if one person with within that family system undergoes the change it's going to have an effect amongst all of the other members right, right, so if right, she right. stops concentrating on him and right. concentrates on herself watch right. the watch the effect it will have within the family and it is, it is sort of principles of Al-Anon as well and the yes. point i point i was making was that I think nearly everybody, whether in, in addiction or not, has got some cross to bear, mm. whether they're hiding it or not, and has got to look at that cross in order to find their, their true self. So hence, people in addiction, including myself, should be grateful, at least I think I'm grateful, that the wonderful world that has opened up for me by looking at my addiction, my source of my addiction by uh, getting into recovery has been very helpful in, in, in my journey. Still progressing, still very, very far from perfection. Absolutely. Well, Ian, um, uh, I have six pages of notes uh, to, to, uh, for this episode. We got through one and a half pages of my notes. <laughs> And I'm not going, I think that's, that's uh, plenty for this session. So uh, where we're going to go from here um, is, is, and I think I'd like to pick up on Bill Wilson, mm -hmm. because we've Absolutely. kind of painted a picture of him. Here he is with all sorts of pain. Uh, he then discovers alcohol. And, uh, and it did for him what life was not doing for him. He gets addicted, but throughout the course of his uh, um, uh, his encounter with the greater self, let us say, uh, the greater self begins to enter into his consciousness. And we all know the, the one in, in Towns Hospital, but in our yes. next episode, I'd like to pick up where the greater self begins manifesting itself in his life. And then it yeah. comes to that, that great experience. And then look in some depth at what happens to the ego when it encounters the, the greater self. Uh, what, what, what realignment is it that comes about? So we will pick that up in the, in the next episode. And uh, I look forward to that, Bill. Yes, and I look forward that I have a week. I don't have to prepare any notes. I've got I've got mine from from this time. So <laughs> this is wonderful. <laughs> I get a week off. Okay, and, uh, my shadow is still here. <laughs> yeah, for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, you you can uh, uh, we we were putting our podcasts onto YouTube now, and uh, you can watch the shadow uh, just gently cross over Ian's face. As we talk, <laughs> I'm glad you paid attention to it. So listen, uh, thank you, Ian, for, uh, for another uh, hour of stimulating conversation. And uh, thank you guys for listening. I hope you found this interesting. Again, I will put uh, notes in the uh, show notes uh, on uh, Ian's book. And I'll also reference the book that we're talking about. It's called Bill W., uh, My First 40 Years. It's a very, very important uh, book for 
understanding Absolutely. Bill Wilson that uh, never made it into the big book. So thank you again for listening. Uh, God bless and uh, keep coming back.